So today is Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a tough day to preach. You know why? Because um, let's say the pastor says, well, I want to honor mothers. So you find a passage about a godly biblical woman or Proverbs 31, and uh, you intend to honor moms, but they end up getting beaten up because, I mean, Proverbs 31 is the perfect woman. Right? She's up early. She's knitting. She's doing real estate deals. Her house is perfect. And the women are just like they're weeping and gnashing and crying. Like, that's not me. So how do you preach on Mother's Day? Well, I have found that a great present on Mother's Day is better fathers. So I'm preaching about the godly father so you'll have a better father. Isn't that a great idea, ladies? But remember, Father's Day is coming, okay? <laughs> now, um, the gist of, of what the Bible has to say about how to be a godly father is summed up in one verse. Right there, Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How do you do that? By having these high standards or changing the standards all the time or you just being a, you know, a grizzly bear all the time. So don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? That's our marching orders. And you know what? There's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of books on how to be a a godly father, how to be a better parent. There's ministries devoted to it. I think if we would just slow down and read that verse and try to live it, there would be a revolution amongst Christian families. So I want us to take a look at this verse. And by the way, this does fit in well with our study of the Great Commission. Remember, we're, we're in the last passage in Matthew's Gospel called the Great Commission, where Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. So we're to make disciples. Now, we, we can do that by sending missionaries to, uh, to other countries, but let's not forget the command to make disciples in our own home. Right? So this, this is some instruction on how to make disciples of your own children. And I am going to give you three keys to being a godly father from this passage. All right? In fact, I'll give them to you right from the beginning. Being a godly father involves leading, balancing, and teaching. All right? Leading, balancing, and teaching. Let's talk about leading. All right? You say, well, where do you get that in the passage? Well, just the fact that Paul addresses fathers. It's addressed to fathers. The clear teaching of the Bible is that men, fathers, are the God-appointed leaders in the family. Now, that clear teaching about male headship is disdained by our culture today. They say it's chauvinistic and so forth. But let me show you, uh, in the same book where men are clearly to be the heads of the family. Here in Ephesians 5, one chapter earlier, 
It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head, and we're going to come back to that word in a second, the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, some who um, don't like, there, there are those who are liberal who just don't even pay attention to this. They say that was back then. Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Um, they don't give any authority to the Bible. But then there are those in the evangelical church who say, nope, that's the inspired word of God, but they still don't like it. And they want to get rid of that word head. So there's a group of people who have said, well, the word head doesn't mean authoritative. doesn't mean that they're in authority over the family. And they say, just like uh, the word cold can have many definitions, the word head can have many definitions. And... For example, there's the head of a river. The head of the river is the source from which the river flows, um, but it's not in authority over the river. And they would say that's what it means here. The husband is the source of the woman. In what sense? Well, remember Adam was made first and Eve was taken from him. Therefore, he is the source, but he's not in authority uh, over the family. Let me give you three reasons why that doesn't work. The word, the context, and the analogy in this passage. The word itself, head, kephale. Um, Wayne Grudem is a theologian. He did a massive word study on the word kephale in first century Greek. Not just in the Bible, but in all other literature. And studied all the occurrences of the word head. Never once did it mean source. In other words... What some people are trying to do today is read back into that word a meaning that it has taken on today, but it just didn't exist in the first century. All right, so the word doesn't mean source. That's, that's one reason you can't do that. Second reason, the context. In a context where the word head appears with the word submit, right, submit, it inherently has to have the concept of authority in it. Someone is submitting to the head. It's not just the word head that contains the idea of authority, but the people submitting to the head, that also argues for authority. And then um, there's just the analogy. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Right? Christ is Lord. Okay, now, we don't make this a perfect analogy where we're to be worshipped, right? Some people do that. But the analogy itself argues against this just being kind of a neutral term. So all that to say, God knows what he's doing. He has designed the family uh, to have a head, to have a leader. Now, um, the thing that that uh, we need to realize, men, is that head, while the wife is to submit to the husband the way that uh, the, the church submits to Christ, husbands, what's our job? We're to love our wives. 
the way Christ loved the church. How did he do that? By dying for her. All right? So all that to say, um, we are called to be the leaders. Now, practically, though, what does that mean? What does it mean, men, that we're to be the spiritual leaders of our family? Let me give you four quick things. They all begin with the same letter, so you can remember them. All right? Number one. Well, there's a... Number one. Step up. Some guys in this room, we just need to step up and say, I'm the God-appointed leader. I will embrace that role rather than run from it. I'm the one. You know what it means to to be the God-appointed leader? It means you're the one who will give an account before God for your family. I'm ultimately responsible, so I'm going to embrace that responsibility instead of running from it. You know, like Adam in the garden, we kind of have a tendency to say, well, if she wants to make the decisions, let her. And ladies, like Eve, there can be a tendency to want to take the lead. Step up and and say, I am the God-appointed leader, and I will embrace that responsibility. Now, why don't we step up? Well, it's scary. What if we goof up? What if we make a wrong decision? It's scary to lead. You know, um, one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. Have you you ever seen the movie Remember the Titans? Okay. So uh, it's a high school football movie, and Denzel Washington is the coach. And the, the quarterback has just been injured. And um, it's time to put in the second-string quarterback. His name is Sunshine. It's actually, his name is Ronnie Bass. So uh, the coach says, Ronnie Bass, Ronnie Bass, come in. And uh, he comes over, and, and Ronnie Bass says, I can't do this, coach. I, 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 I'm not ready, and I can't make the pitch, and I don't know this play. And he's just all nervous. And Denzel Washington says, son, when I was 15 years old, my mom and my dad died on the same day. And I was the youngest of 12. And I didn't want to lead, but my entire family looked to me to lead, and I led that family. Now, you get in there. You're the colonel. You march that team down into the end zone. And as Ronnie Bass steps on the field, the other coach says, 12? He said, I thought you only had eight brothers. And the coach says, yeah, it sounded better to say 12. (laughs) Ronnie Bass steps on the field, and this new attitude comes over him. He gets in the huddle, and he calls the play, and he says to his center, let your guy in, calls a quick, quick slant in play. So he gets the, the ball, throws it to him, and this rushing uh, linebacker comes in, and he takes him out. He's a leader now. He marches the team down the field. He needed to adjust from being second-string quarterback to stepping up. Some of us just simply need to make that adjustment and step up. Okay? Now you go, well, that's great, but I still need more help. What, what else would you say? Well, that's step up. Number two, salvation. If you're not saved, you can't lead your family spiritually. Why? Well, if you're not saved, the Bible says you're spiritually dead, spiritually blind, blinded by Satan, unable to understand the word, and at enmity with God. 
Other than that, you're a great spiritual leader. You, you can't, de- dead people can't lead. Right? If, guys, if you have any inkling of a doubt as to whether you're saved or not, trust in Christ. How can you go, how can you go home week after week after week and go, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Oh, well. I would be obsessed with making sure that Christ is my Lord and Savior. Now, um, some guys, you go, well, are you saved? No, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, why don't you trust in Christ? Well, there's that whole Calvinism thing that you talk about, and I'm just waiting for him to elect me. Really? You're just like passively waiting for God to elect you? You're waiting for a sign? Well, here's a sign, all right? Here's a sign. Um, Acts 17.30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent of your sin. He commands all men everywhere to repent. There's your sign. Don't passively go, well, I'm just waiting for some feeling to come over me. Realize you're a sinner. Realize that Christ wants to save you and trust in him. Acts 16, 30. The Philippian jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's what you need to do. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus. Well, does God really want me saved? Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I, declare, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? I mean, there's a time to study predestination and election, and, um, you know, that's an awesome thing to know. But you also need to know that the Bible commands you to repent and believe. Do it. Make that the number one priority in your life. Number three, Scripture. You will never be a spiritual leader if you're not studying the Word of God. You know, some people coast. They, they, they go on being fed, coming to sermons, coming to Bible studies, but they don't study. Open the book and study the Word of God. And I always love it when wives try to make excuses for their husbands. Well, he's just not a reader. Become a reader. Jesus is your Lord. He says, read my word. Become a reader. You have to read to do your taxes. You have to read to understand the sports page. Take up the word and read it. Now, you go, I don't know where to start. Well, let me get you started. This week, will you read the Gospel of John? It's 21 chapters, three chapters a day. By next Sunday, you'll have it mastered. How do you do it? Open it up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you read it, and you think about it. You go, wow. That means Jesus is God. Yeah? 
And, and you sit and you think about it. And then you keep reading more. And pretty soon you get the hang of it. And the Gospel of John's great. It tells you who Jesus is. There's great stories in there about his life. Then you go, well, what, what do I do after that? I'd go to Mark. Why? Because it's a, sh- a short gospel. It's 16 chapters. Then what? I'd go to Acts. Right? I'm starting in the New Testament. And, and then just keep going after Acts. Don't worry about Revelation. That'll really mess with you. Okay? <laughs> if you don't understand, send me an email. Send one of the elders an email. Not that we understand it any better, but, you know, we can at least brainstorm. Right? Come to men's study. Come to a small group. Yeah, everybody says, I don't want to go to a small group because I'm going to look like a fool. And then you get there and you realize nobody else knows anything more than you do. Hopefully the leader's prepared, though, and they've studied it, and he can help you understand the Bible. But you will never be a leader, spiritual leader, without studying the Word. Then finally, schedule. You know, um, there's this terrifying statistic. I've heard anywhere from 50 to 90% of kids who are in church youth groups, once they go to college, no longer go to church. Is that about right, dear? What's your statistic? 50 to 90, 80-something, right? Um, Now, that means they're probably never saved in the first place because those who are truly saved have to be in fellowship, okay? But here's where our schedule comes in. I've seen this happen way too often. I know families who say, Jesus and the church are our number one priority when it doesn't get in the way with our other number one priorities. And busy, busy schedules end up creating a sporadic church attendance. And what's that teaching the kids? Jesus is number one as long as he doesn't conflict with your other number one priorities. And they get disassociated from the church they learn to, to think that they're Christians. Not that going to church saves you, right? But how can you be saved and not be a part of his body? A lot of it's because they've been taught that busyness trumps commitment to Christ in his church. Right? So there you go. There's, uh, there's four things. Make sure you're saved. Step up and be a leader. Get in the word. And make your schedule, make Christ and his church priorities. That's a great start. Okay? So there's, uh, there's leading. Now let's talk about balancing. Okay? Fathers, do not provoke your children. It's where you're riding them all the time and you're just pointing out uh, all their flaws all the time. And they're provoked. That means they're seething with anger inside. Don't do that. On the other hand, do bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't provoke, do discipline. And you go, well, wait a minute, those seem to be opposites. No. There's a balancing thing that needs to go on. Grace and guts. Law and love combined into the same household. Some homes are all law, no grace. 
and we wonder why the kids end up being perfectionistic legalists. Other homes are all grace and no law, and we wonder why they end up undisciplined and wild. So let me first talk about discipline, then we'll talk about grace. Um, I mentioned the billion books out there. Um, I like Kevin Lehman. He wrote the book, uh, uh, Have a New Kid by Friday, and then this one is called Parenting Your Powerful Child. You know what a powerful child is? The one who's really in control of the family. And if I were to sum up Kevin Lehman's um, parental advice, I'd give you these three words. Clarity, consequences, and calm. All right? Clarity. Just make sure the kid knows what's expected. Chores, homework, attitudes, be clear. All right? Consequences. When they violate those clear rules, there need to be consequences. But he is big on setting up situations where there are natural consequences to their misbehavior. And I'll give you an example in just a second. Okay? But then, here's the real key. Calm. When the consequence gets laid on the kid and he starts to freak out and he wants to argue or she wants to argue and you engage and their blood pressure goes up and your blood pressure goes up and do, 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 they're playing you. They're playing you. Right? The powerful child has just won. Because you've raised your blood pressure. He's gotten your attention. So, layman's strategy is dish out the consequence when they start to argue. Refuse to engage. Go into the other room. Do the dishes. When they come in and they argue, say, no, that's going to be... You go in the other room. And you just refuse to engage. So, let me give you an example. Um, he, He has a bunch of examples where scenario A is where the parent engages. And then he says, let me give you a scenario B of how that could be done better. So take the kid who uh, is always late getting up. He's got an alarm clock, but he doesn't set it or he turns it off. And um, the mom is always rushing him and yelling at him and having to take him to school. So he gives scenario A where that happens. Then he gives scenario B. And this would be his example of how to, how to do this little three-step plan. Okay. When the alarm goes off and the kid ignores it, you don't do anything. No reminders, no visits to his room, no tantalizing breakfast smells to encourage him to get up. Get out a book, have some coffee, and wait out the rest of the scene. Smile when you see the school bus stop for a minute, then whiz away. Fifteen minutes later, your son comes stumbling downstairs, bleary-eyed and rumpled. Mom, it's 8.50, he says in a grumpy tone. Oh, you respond calmly. Why didn't you get me up? I'm going to be late. I guess you're going to be late. Mom, he says, I've got a test at nine. I guess you'll have to explain why you're late. Back to your book with your feet up. We got to move now. 
you got to drive me. By now, your son has grabbed his back, backpack and a banana for breakfast. I'm almost finished. I'll be with you in a couple of minutes, you say, and you continue reading. Now your son stops cold, looking completely confused. It gets better. He insists you write him a note. Say I was at a doctor's appointment. You shake your head. No, you'll need to explain to the office why you were late. He stares at you in complete shock. You aren't serious. You smile. I'm completely serious. Finally, you drop him off at the front door of the school. Have a good day, honey. I'll see you this evening. And off you drive. You go through uh, a coffee stop and reward yourself for following through with a tall chai latte and laugh yourself silly for five minutes. Do you think that after today your kid might get up by himself? Right. Now, gives another example of, uh, of a kid who's, uh, who's lazy and dwaddles and eats his Cheerios really slowly and he's always late and then the mom engages and yells. Gives the uh, scenario too. Jared is sitting in his pajamas at the breakfast table, stirring his Cheerios. You eye the clock, 825. You've been ready for this moment ever since 630 when you got up with a gleam in your eye. You packed his lunch, his backpack, his set of clean underwear, jeans, and a shirt, and his tennis shoes and stashed them in the car. Jared, you have two minutes before you have to meet me in the car. He continues staring at his Cheerios and, Cheerios and doesn't acknowledge you. Two minutes later, you pick up your purse and car keys and open the door to the garage. Time to go. Jared looks up startled. But mom, I'm not even dressed. Your backpack and your clothes are already in the car. Stunned, the little sheep follows you into the car and gets in. When you're a block away from school, he exclaims, I'm still in my pajamas. I can't go to school like this. Well, you say calmly, I'm going to pull over in this parking lot. And you'll have exactly one minute to change. If you don't, you'll be wearing your pajamas to school today. You pull over in the spot you figured out hours earlier. Count exactly 60 seconds and grin all over inside as your son scrambles as fast as he can to get dressed. He really doesn't want to go to school in his pajamas. Miracle of miracles, when you arrive at school a couple of minutes later, the kid is dressed. He looks a little shell-shocked, though. So much the better. You drive away smiling, strategizing how you can now move to the next stage, having him get dressed at home and pack his own backpack. But you're on your way because you've realized something important. You can't back down with this kid ever and hope to accomplish anything. You're going to have to stick to your guns. So you've seen it happen again and again. There's always an argument over something set up a situation where there will be a natural consequence. He can't blame you. It's his fault. He'll feel some pain. You don't raise your, your uh, temperature level, and hopefully he's going to learn from that. Some of you are going, this is great. This is awesome. Okay? Now, that's the discipline part. What about the grace part? Now, and he, and he does cover this too. When they repent, forgive them. When they admit that they're sorry and say they're sorry, forgive them. Here's the key. Try to create a home environment where the rules and the consequences are clear, but where it's safe for little Buford, as he calls him, little Buford, 
to repent. Okay? The prodigal son would have never gone home if he didn't think there was a gracious father waiting there to receive him. So you want to create an environment where the standards are clear, where there are consequences, but when they repent, they're forgiven. And the relationship is restored. So here's a question. Do you repent? When's the last time you admitted you were wrong and said you were sorry? Because if you never do it, they're not going to do it. See, the the non-repentant parent is modeling what they think is dignified Christianity. But if they're never wrong, what you're modeling is Phariseeism. Because they can see right through our faults. We're not perfect. So what you're going for here is a balancing act between discipline and grace. Now, you go, well, but give me all the rules. You're different than everybody else. Your kid is different than everybody else. Your your children within your family are different than everybody else. So to give you too many rules, that's going to turn into legalism. But the principle of balancing discipline and grace is what you have to figure out, how it works in your family and with each of your kids. Okay? Now, let me move on to the last one. Teaching. Okay? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's the teacher. We all have to teach. Okay? You know, I'm not a very good teacher. Well, let me give you some some help in how you can teach. First of all, um, you don't have to create all the new material. For, For those of you who have kids who are sitting in here, what about just making it a habit that on Sunday you discuss the sermon? Right? Take your bulletin with you, and you go through it with them. What did you think about point one? What did you think about point two? Let's look up this verse. Let's really, really discuss the sermon. There you go. You're teaching them what you've just been fed yourself. Now, the littler ones, they're uh, they're in children's church right now. I know the lesson. They're learning about um, the Israelites going back and rebuilding the temple, and they're offering up sacrifices, and they're going to talk about those sacrifices and how it points to Christ. Do you talk to them? What did you learn in Sunday school? Do they have the handouts? Do they have the, the coloring and the little, little cotton balls? Children's ministry is all about cotton balls, right? <laughs> Not always. Sometimes. Right? Ask, ask them to teach you what they learned. Now, a lot of times, they really get it wrong. Like the little kid who the, the mom said, what did you... What did you learn today? We learned about Moses. And the next, what did you learn about Moses? What did you learn about It's like all year, Moses. And the the mom went to the teacher and said, boy, you're doing a long series on Moses. She goes, Moses? We haven't done Moses. It's all Jesus. And the kid got it all confused. So they get confused. Um, By the way, whenever you hear from your kids, you do need to kind of give grace to the teachers. Um, 
well, so-and-so said such-and-such in our Sunday school class. Um, Maybe they got it mixed up, all right? But ask them what they've learned, okay? Then, if you're reading your Bible every day, like if you're going to read John this week, there you have something to talk about. Did you learn anything in your three chapters of John that you can discuss with your kids? But then, what about a nighttime Bible time? Every kid wants to be tucked in. And rather than just reading green eggs and ham, here's a great idea. Get a children's Bible. A great way for adults to learn the Bible stories and the flow of the Bible is by reading through a children's Bible. And you're learning the big picture while you're teaching it to them. And you just read the story. Okay. Now, let me give you a little, little bit of, of uh, my philosophy of teaching children um, and teaching them the Bible. Every story in the Bible is about Jesus. You go, what? Yes. Or, or let me put it this way. You should connect every story in the Bible to Jesus. You go, well, how do I do that? Well, there is a, uh, a little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it shows you how to do this. But this would be a great way to get started. Each story whispers about Jesus. Now, really, here's some, here's some big words. Here's, here's how you get to Jesus with every story. One way is simply story completion. Even if you're in the Old Testament... You then finish the story by explaining how Jesus completes the story. I'll show you that in just a second. Then there's types. A lot of the stories in the Bible foreshadow the person of Christ. I'll give you an example of that. And then there's law gospel. There's the law, which the people in the Old Testament are always breaking. That's why they need the gospel. These three tools can turn any story into a lesson that takes you to Jesus. So, for example, the first story in the Jesus Storybook Bible is Adam and Eve. They're created, put in the garden, perfect paradise. But then Satan, the snake, convinces Eve to take the fruit. God said, don't eat from that tree but he convinces her that God's holding out on them. And that fruit is not only good to eat, but it'll make you just like God. And she gives it to Adam, and they eat the fruit, and sin has entered into the world. And they're kicked out of the garden. Now, in a lot of families, that would be it. Well, today we've learned that you don't eat fruit or you get kicked out of the garden. But in this little little story, they complete the story. It says, well, in another story, it would be all over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there, even though he knew he would suffer. Now, I'm going to skip down here to the last paragraph. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you, and when I do... I'm going to do battle against the snake. 
I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would, one day, God himself would come. See, so now you've told the story of the fall, but you've ended with the promise that a Savior is going to come and change this whole mess that they created. That's story completion. You can do that with any story in the Bible. Whatever the lesson is, you take it to Jesus, who's going to make things right. Okay? Then there's, uh, there's types. What's a type? A type is something that happens in the Old Testament, or it's an Old Testament type. An Old Testament type happens in the Old Testament, and it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. For example, here's the story of Abraham, who is over 100 years old, and he's been promised that he'll have a son, even though he's too old to have a child, and his wife is too old to have a child. But they have a child named Isaac. And God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, have him carry some wood up on Mount Moriah, put him on an altar, and raise a knife and kill him. So Abraham takes him up on top of the mountain. As he raises the knife, God says, stop. There's a ram in the bushes. And they switch places. Now, stop right there. Kids terrify to you now. What if dad does that to me? Right? But wait a minute. This is all a picture. It points to Jesus. The story ends this way. Many years later, another son would climb another hill carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son. His only son. The son he loved. The Lamb of God. See, it all points to Jesus. Now, let me, let me give you another one. Story of, uh, of David and Goliath. Don't read it yet. So the Israelites are terrified of the Philistines because they have this mighty champion, Goliath, who's a giant. And he taunts them. Send out a man here. I'll fight him one-on-one. And they're all cowering. And little David says, what are you guys all afraid of? I'll fight him. And uh, in fact, the, the king says, put my armor on. And he tries it on, and it's all clanking around. He says, no, nah, I don't need that. And he goes off, and he fights the giant one-on-one takes that slingshot and boom, hits him in the head with a, uh, with a stone, kills him, chops his head off, right? Now, how does that story usually get told to kids? In fact, how does it get preached in churches? You are David. The giant are the problems in your life. Maybe a sin you're trying to overcome, maybe fear, maybe financial problems. But if you trust in God, you can be strong and slay your giant. Is that what we're supposed to get out of it? Who are we in this story? Most people want to be David. We're the cowering 
Israelites. Who is David? Jesus. In fact, the New Testament is full of references to Jesus being David's greater son. So, this book, at least, got it right. Many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. Jesus is foreshadowed by David. Then um, there's law gospel. Here's the story of the Ten Commandments. God gives Moses, there he is, Moses, the Ten Commandments. Okay? God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. In other words, what this is teaching is exactly what Romans 3 19 and 20 teaches that the law was never given to save you. Why was it given? To show you that you need to be saved. Right? So here, they, they're given the law. They said, we'll do it. And they can't do it. And God knew they couldn't do it. Only one person can keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them. Because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could Save them. Now, now there, any time you come to any law in the Old Testament or the New Testament, yes, it's the standard by which we strive to live, but do law gospel with your kids. Point out that God's standard outside of Jesus is that they need to keep these laws perfectly. And ask them, have you kept these laws perfectly? No. That's why God sent Jesus to be our Savior, to rescue us from our sin. All right? So there you have it. In fact, um, there's your children's ministry major at Moody Bible Institute, right? Um, you can use these three tools in teaching your kids any lesson and get them to Jesus, all right? So, men, what are we called to do? We're called to lead, we're called to balance, and we're called to teach. Let me pray for us.